episode of the William Branham Historical Research Podcast. I'm your host, John Collins, the author and founder of William Branham Historical Research at william-branham.org. And with me, I have my co-host, researcher, minister, and friend, Charles Paisley, the founder of christiangospelchurch.org. And today, we have our very special guest, fellow researcher and historian, Bernie Wade. And together, we're examining the history and the intersections in history between William Branham and other key figures that either influenced or were influenced by the post-World War II healing revivals. Charles, Bernie, I'm so excited about this podcast because we've, Charles and I have been leading up to the moment that we're about to discuss here, and we realized as we're researching William Branham's early history, some of it's been erased. And what do you do with this? And um, Charles and I have been, you know, going through all of the hundreds of newspaper articles and publications and life stories, and we found that most of the official biographies of William Branham are completely different. They, they do not match each other, and elements of history has just simply been erased. And while researching, we came across an article written by Bernie Wade describing William Branham at the Mishawaka meetings as a healing revivalist. And that meeting, I believe, was 1934. And William Branham's official story is that his um, healing ministry, his alleged gift of healing, did not come until the very day that Israel became a nation, which, according to history, is 1948. So we've got this 1934 to 1948 discrepancy, and we tried to talk through it, and we actually, you know, discussed different ways in which we could spin this, and I thought, let's just go right to the source. Let's bring Bernie Wade on the show, and um, let's, you know, let's try to uncover what actually happened in history, because it does appear to coincide with some key events in Pentecostal history. And Bernie Wade, who is, you know, is over time has become a very close friend of mine, has extensive research in Pentecostal history. And um, Bernie, why don't I just let you introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do? All right. Well, I'm Bernie Wade. Um, I'm the chancellor of Life College and service uh, president of International Circle of Faith, and we're a, we're a global Christian or Christian world network is what we say. So, you know, our goal is just trying to help people live for Christ. It should be simple, but unfortunately, it's often complicated by men. <laughs> Surprisingly so. And you've got a, a book that's out recently and another one that's about to come out, right? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Thankfully. Yeah. New book. New book was released uh, on on Tuesday of this week. It's uh, War on Earth, um, and essentially we deal with the fact that uh, Satan declared war on women. Um, shouldn't we look around our society? It shouldn't be a big surprise. Um, men are always trying to get the attention, but. Uh, he really didn't care about the men. He kind of bypassed that, didn't seem to be too bothered by the the new zookeeper in God's kingdom. Uh, but when that woman came along, all of a sudden, um, she got his full and undivided attention. And uh, he had a, uh, a very horrible plan for her and her descendants. And so and that's all of us. So I write yeah. about, you know, why did why did this happen? Why did he attack Eve and kind of ignore Adam um, and what we should be trying to do about it? Right. So we've got, So I don't know how we'll fit all of this into one single episode, but we're going to try. Um, I thought we'll get what we can get, right? <laughs> exactly. I, I thought maybe I'd let Charles take the lead with <clears throat> some of the research because he's been piecing together the timeline and I've been filling in with some of the gaps. And um, Charles, you have you have some main points that we're trying to clarify, and I thought I'd let you take the lead on this. 
Yeah, uh, sure. Uh, it, it's real nice to meet you, Dr. Wade, and I'm uh, real glad to have opportunity to chat with you and ask a few questions. We appreciate that. And I know one thing that, uh, you know, as John mentioned, it, William Branham really was not supposed to have any sort of a healing ministry before the 1940s. And so uh, it's very interesting uh, when we found in your book uh, that he was actually at the Mishawaka meetings in 1934 uh, in a uh, in a van with or a truck with healing advertisements printed on it. So that really uh, interested us a lot. And so I know at that point in time, uh, UPC uh, did not exist, and there were multiple other oneness apostolic type groups um, that were. Um, out there. And I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about the different groups that are, were around at that time uh, that went on to form the UPC, and then specifically what was going on at those 1934 meetings when William Branham attended and preached at them. Marvelous. Well, of course, the, the book you reference is not the book that uh, I talked about at the beginning of this broadcast. Uh, the book would be the timetable, uh, Apostolic and Pentecostal Timetable of Key Events, and that would be uh, I believe volume five, I actually have seven volumes of that, so whatever, whichever volume covers the, the 1930s. Um, but uh, of course, you guys know that William Branham uh, was busy working in some level in Jeffersonville, Indiana, as early as the 1920s. Um, but it does, it does uh, historically pan out that he was in Mishawaka um, for a conference. And interestingly enough, I'm, I'm so interested in this topic that I will be speaking in that church in Mishawaka in October. Um, I'm going to spend the weekend there. They're going to pull out their archives. This historic church that's been there over a hundred years and let me look at the documents they have. And I'm hoping to find a picture, um, <laughs> that, you know, maybe somebody snapped, you know, a lot of times you guys know this as researchers and historians, People don't know what it is you're looking for, and you may not even know, but when you see it, you go, oh, yeah, that's right. a really, really cool pick. For example, uh, one of the guys I'm, I, I've researched and am looking for more research on is a missionary to Japan named Leonard Coote, and uh, he came to the United States in Texas and started a school in a church uh, You know, after uh, he was a missionary in Japan. We, because uh, something called the World War II happened, and uh, they didn't like Americans in Japan, so he left the mission field. But you guys uh, found a picture of William Brandon standing in front of some sign, and in the corner you can read uh, what looks obviously to be Leonard Coote's name, so it's a cornerstone or something of the church. So it's those pieces of history that uh, are there, and they're kind of like, look over here, you know, uh, so... You can't argue with those. So one of the, fortunately, uh, there is an eyewitness that is still living. Um, and it is, uh, Bishop GB Rouse, uh, daughter. She's way up in her nineties, very sound mind. I had opportunity to interview her, um, and about a, a wide variety of things, primarily about the church, but then I was equally fast, fast, uh, fascinated or, uh, when she talked about, oh yeah, she remembered when William Branham came to their conference. And of course, we began to narrow down the time. Um, you have to kind of understand what that church was, what it represented, um, why Branham went there. I'm not sure other than it was a large church with a large following. Um, and they had every, every year they had a two week, uh, Bible conference, I think they called it. Uh, so, for two weeks, people from all over the country, probably the world, were gathering there um, in, in a big meeting, you know, several hundred people. Um, and, uh, and for some reason, in 1934, William Branham showed up there. Um, Sister Willoughby described, you know, the vehicle he was driving. And so then I looked at the makeup of that meeting, because if you well reference, reference Charles Branham shows up uh, in the, in the mid 1940s in the newly formed white supremacist organization, the United Pentecostal church. And, and my friends in the United Pentecostal church won't be happy that I just said the newly formed white <laughs> supremacist organization. Um, but I am happy for them to rebuttal my historical research on the topic. 
I do have another book getting ready to be released. It's called Legacy, Charles and Sarah Parham that we released uh, in October. Um, and the story for all Pentecostals is not a very pretty one when it comes to race relations. So William Branham, who we know, he's not doesn't have a very pretty uh, history in race relations. He shows up in Mishawaka um, at a love fest for multiculturalism. And uh, having read uh, and listened to some of his tapes and read some of his comments um, about what he really thought about uh, people of other colors, um, I'm sure he was quite shocked because I can tell you that G.B. Rao's kind of trademark was that he was very multicultural. And it's very important historically because the South Bend, Indiana area um, had some very horrible uh, riots and uh, not as not as extreme as Tulsa, uh, but a lot of black people simply left South Bend rather than deal with the racial violence. Um, many churches would not welcome people of color to their churches, but not what started out. Originally, Rouse Church was called Midway Tabernacle. And just off the top of my head, I don't know when they changed it. I believe today it's called Apostolic Temple. Um, but they are a continuation of the apostolic faith message that started in in uh, the Topeka, Kansas revival, when it really became known and spread, uh, you know, to the whole world. So uh, Rao was very much in the imprimatur of a Charles Parham, where he was embracing of both men and women as ministers, embracing of people of all colors. Didn't matter to him if they were Japanese or Mexican or, or, or blacks. Um, and uh, so that was the environment uh, of Bishop Rouse Church. And more importantly, in 1925, he was ordained a bishop in the Pentecostal Assemblies of the World. Now, there is a group that exists today called the Pentecostal Assemblies of the World, but it is a reorganized effort. That, that group, the original PAW, uh, went into a merger, um, got into a serious fight between the blacks and the whites. Uh, the whites left and became one of the arms that formed the United Pentecostal Church. And the other arm, of course, eventually in the early 1940s, reorganized again as the Pentecostal Assemblies of the World, picking up the charter. Uh, sadly today, uh, None of those groups uh, embraced the imprimatur uh, that was brought by Charles Parham um, to bring the gospel to every every people. Uh, so Branham arrives in 34 in Mishawaka to a meeting that I'm sure he didn't really like. I can't imagine that he would have liked uh, the multicultural environment. Uh, some names, if you're looking to see who might have been there, uh, there's a bishop named Silas, S-I-L-A-S is his last name very prominent man. He happened to be black. I'm sure he was a speaker. And uh, he also is a man who preached Bishop Rao's funeral. Um, uh, Rao was so well received in the black community that when uh, the most the most famous, if you talk about what we would call the apostolic Pentecostal movement, the most well-known name that is appreciated by people of all colors is Garfield Thomas Haywood. In Indianapolis, they named, named a street after him. Uh, he was a very uh, amazing uh, individual, very talented writer. Uh, I believe he worked for a newspaper there in Indianapolis for a while. And uh, G.T. Haywood um, was the leader, uh, even though he didn't necessarily have the title most of the time. He was the leader of the early Pentecostal Assemblies of the World. He's the guy that they really got it done. It was they moved it from the West Coast to Indianapolis, rented buildings. When they would rent a building for their conferences in Indianapolis, they just couldn't hold the people. There was that many people come. It was very, very multicultural, very inclusive. And uh, for people like G.B. Rowell, it was wonderful. Um, obviously, for people who uh, don't like people of color, that's probably a really bad place to be. Uh, so there was a split in 1925. And uh, that would become the beginning of the United Pentecostal Church. A guy named Howard Goss, who has, uh, you can read his own history. He's, uh, he's always on the wrong side of racial strife. 
He led the charge to divide from the PAW primarily because G.T. Haywood, being a black man, had risen in that group to be the secretary. Uh, if you guys have ever been licensed by an organization, generally the secretary signs the ministerial license. Right. And there's absolute historical documents that say uh, they didn't want Haywood to sign their documents, which is just, from my vantage point, it's, I, I can't imagine, can't imagine saying, I don't want to be part of this group because I don't want a black man signing my documents, but that's, that's where they were. So that's, this is the group and Rao's a big part of it. Uh, Haywood died in 31. So it would have been previous to, uh, to Branham's visit. Uh, and I think my, my, this is my personal opinion. I have no evidence. I think he, someone had probably told him it was a group that might be ripe for harvest. Um, people were looking at, when Haywood died, everybody was trying to see if they could get a piece of the pie. Um, and in fact, they did, they reorganized, they merged and reorganized in 31 after Haywood's death. Um, still remained at that time a very multicultural group. Um, but there were a lot of vultures, you know, looking to see if they could pick up the pieces. Um, I'm, I think that's what brought Branham there. Somebody had told him or who knows, there may have been somebody with him that was somehow connected. Um, you know, he becomes pretty good friends with Howard Goss later on. Uh, I've got a lot of quotes in my, in my timetable from the 1940s where Howard Goss is singing his praises. Um, obviously after the, uh, uh the halo incident, um, in, uh, San, San Antonio, uh, the United Pentecostal church preachers, they were all enamored with him. They had bought into the special brand of mysticism that he, uh, and his friend from Indianapolis were selling um and i can't think of that chaplain ray right yeah ray, ray hoekstra yeah raymond yeah. hoekstra uh had also come to indiana in i think the same about the same time as Branham began to make his move about 22 build a massive church in indianapolis that is still there um has done a little better job being inclusive but was you know really as far as i know the largest church in the newly formed white supremacist United Pentecostal church. Um, so, and he got off into mysticism. He's got to, you know, he's telling people that the uh, little David Walker is levitating and, uh, <laughs> and it's interesting. I actually did a whole study on levitation because, you know, these people think, well, yeah, that was, look how powerful God's levitating him. And I'm yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> I did so the same thing. <laughs> where's that in the Bible? Yeah. What do you mean? You know, yeah. you're going to tell me this, kids levitating and and nobody in scripture did it <laughs> you know there <clears throat> there's so much there bernie um first off i have to say i um i went into your research with a you know me i i always start out by nature highly critical and then try to separate all of the the fictional stuff and see what actually happened. That's, that's how I researched. So I, I went and even your research, I went very critical. And, um, as you and I have discussed openly, I'm not a Charles Fox Parham fan by no means, but after studying your research and reading the book that's about to come out that you, the third one you mentioned, um, you changed my mind on quite a few things after reading that book history, in the way that William Branham has erased his history, people against Charles Fox Parham have rewritten his history. And some of the biggest ones, um, as, as you know, the, the claim that he was in the Ku Klux Klan, uh, you completely convinced me that's incorrect. And um, he's, I think he's charged with, he's, not charged with, but he is accused of sodomy, which I'm now understanding from you. That's also not quite right. Um, it, it does appear based on, well, I don't want to give the surprises away that's in the book. I'll let the people read the book and you can find out what is the real truth here. But <clears throat> like I said, there's so much there. William Branham, uh, I don't know how much we've talked about this yet, but he was in a Pentecostal sect that uh, Roy Davis, who was the second in command for the Ku Klux Klan, he was the ambassador, the royal ambassador for the Knights of the Flaming Sword, 
which appear to be in opposition to G.T. Haywood's Victim of the Flaming Sword. And they're trying to grow this Pentecostal organization. And I think you hit the nail on the head as an opportunist. Going to Rao's church would have been very strategic for the organization. And Branham, at the time he went there, according to your timeline, puts him in Roy Davis's church as basically the bishop of the um, Pentecostal Baptist Church of God sect. So then from there, it's like this spider web of connections. I won't, I, there's not even enough time to discuss all the names that you just mentioned, but researchers can go back and go through each one of these men, and you can see the spider web of all of these connections of men that some of them, as you said, were highly racist individuals. It's really interesting the stuff that you shared there because uh, you, you know you're you're spot on that there there there's something you know in very early Pentecostalism I mean obviously you had William Seymour you had Charles Parham you had there was a there was a very racial openness at the very beginning of the Pentecostal movement but you know by the time you've come into the twenties there there's definitely signs that there's attempts to segregate Pentecostalism. Um, and I, I think you you you've, you have some great documentation along that line, and when it comes to that, it appears very strongly that at least in the twenties and thirties, William Branham is strongly on the uh, pro segregationist side of the Pentecostal movement, and that that racial that racial strand of thought stays in Pentecostalism uh, into the forties for sure, um, and and I, I'm. You may know this, Bernie Wade, already, but uh, and this is one area our research is is heading in towards, and we're going to do some episodes on this. But Wesley Swift actually came out of Amy Semple McPherson's church in on the West Coast. Wesley Swift, the father of the Christian identity movement, um, the man who is responsible for the most prominent white supremacist uh, Christian uh, ideology in the United States, came out of Pentecostalism, um, and his white supremacy views. Um, were picked up and were quite prominent within the Latter Rain movement um, and within parts of the Pentecostal, overall Pentecostal movement. And William Branham stayed somewhat uh, connected to these views for his entire life. Uh, and and it, it's just very interesting because he does seem to come back in and be somewhat multicultural starting in the 40s. Um, and and as you mentioned, I I just want to uh, hold up for our viewers if they didn't see it already. Here's little David Walker that you mentioned levitating <laughs> off the ground, and and it's it's incredibly interesting because this is actually how William Branham, uh, his, one of his vehicles to rise to fame is he was David Walker's sideshow at first. It seems. <laughs> um, he was actually touring with little David Walker in little David Walker's tent with with Hoekstra, like you mentioned. Here's a picture from 1947, and uh, we have here little David Walker and William Branham standing off to the side with him, uh, and that's in the St. Louis Keel Auditorium uh, in 1947 uh, when William Branham had meetings there, and so why Keel Auditorium in 1947? That's a good question. Maybe you can answer that for us. I try to be a good attorney and never ask a question <laughs> you can't answer. Um, Keel Auditorium is the is the most preferred location for the United Pentecostal Church. They will have most of their major meetings there at Keel Auditorium. I believe even their organizational meeting was in Keel Auditorium in St. Louis. So um, while David Walker is so David Walker's there, Hoekstra's there. Um, this is a preferred place for the, for the United Pentecostal church. And I have no doubt that a large percentage of that crowd is the white, uh, base of the United Pentecostal church. You know, one of the things that's interesting to me about William Branham, as it is about other similar shaman, uh, and I hope I'm not being too forceful, but that's who I, who I know that he is. Um, is that here we are, William Branham has been dead for uh, 60 years, right? Yeah, something like that. Something what, like what that. You, 1965 yeah. is when he died. Okay. Yeah, so I was a, I was a baby. Um, I know I got this gray hair, but I'm not really that old. Um, so <laughs> uh, William Branham has been dead for 60 years, and the people that call themselves the church 
cannot decide whether or not he was a shaman or a man of God. It's very frightening. Yeah. It tells me that there's very little discernment in the church. And if you, if you look up the word channeler, it will give you almost a textbook definition of William Branham. It's like, this guy was a channeler. He was channeling spirits. Um, I have said to people, uh, now, now I want to tell you when I was growing up, William Branham was the devil. So it was no problem for me. It wasn't until I, it wasn't until I began to expand my sphere and talk to people, uh, that I was like, well, wait a minute. Uh, you know, and people would challenge my, my perception of William Brown. But here's the interesting thing. In 1947, the United Pentecostal Church makes William Branham the, their poster boy. Yes. Uh, as I've well documented, um, you know, their chairman, Howard Goss, is, you know, saying how wonderful William Branham is. And they're going to his meetings and supporting and he's preaching the whole summer of 47. Uh, he's preaching predominantly in the United Pentecostal churches and not just in their churches, but in their, all of their main churches, you know, he he's preaching for Hoekstra. He's preaching their major conferences, their camp meetings. He's preaching for Kidson, um, and some others. I mean, it's just like, Oh my God, this guy is the second coming, which I think he thought he was, didn't he say he was the second coming? So, Mm. um, and I think Robert Doherty, the one who lifted William Branham into fame, Robert Doherty, he was in St. Louis at that time as well. Okay. Well, that Robert Doherty, I, I have, I know, I don't know him well. I met him as uh, when I was much younger, probably 45, 50 years ago. Um, I did not know that, that connection until I began to see it. And you also showed it. Uh, when I saw his name the first time connected to Branham, I was like, Hmm. I wonder if it's the same Robert Doherty from Central City, Kentucky, because that's where yeah. he was the time I knew it. Um, but I'm not surprised um, because these guys, as you know, to use an old colloquialism, were thick as thieves. Um, so, so Branham, you know, Branham just races to the center of the pack in in the in forty in the mid forties. You know, he was looking for a group. He he was looking for more victims. He he needed some new ones. Um, he and Hoekstra, Hoekstra, look, Hoekstra's a golden boy. Hoekstra could walk on water in those days. So um, nobody's going to connect question anything Hoekstra does. That's yeah. really why it takes such a, a toehold. That's why the David Walker thing becomes such a big deal. And that's why um, Brandon becomes such a big deal in the United Pentecostal Church, because no one, no one cares. And hey, look, these guys are all white. Mm-hmm. You know, we don't have to worry about the darkies. Cause we got rid of them. And, you know, uh, so, so 47, Branham's their, their, their hero mid seventies. They're running the opposite direction, denouncing him. Same group, United Pentecostal church. Yeah. Trying to separate. Right. He's not less white, but he's got off into crazy, more crazy stuff. And he's made it. So now they're calling him a false prophet, blah, 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 blah. Um, but strangely enough, many of their followers still to this day, you know, are, are, you know, I, I, we, I don't, this offensive. Some people, we said Branhamites. So people who are uninformed, you know, who just live maybe in the general war, world or not, don't live for Christ. For them to think that William Branham was something special doesn't really bother me. But the people that claim to know Christ think that this guy is something special. Um, I mean, I think Judas will have a better case before God than yeah. William Branham, you know. I think Judas, I think when I look at Judas, Judas was a guy who just wanted the kingdom to come right now, and it wasn't really going his way. Branham was a guy who thought he was the kingdom. Yeah. I think the biggest thing that I discovered from reading your research about this time period and the key players, Raymond Hoekstra was just a name that I, you know, I came across several times, and I knew he was an early campaign manager. But your research as you just said, points out to the fact that Hoekstra took what most people thought of as, you know, just revivals and religion and turned it into showmanship. And he had, you know, lights, camera, action. Here's the boy that can levitate. Here's here's your next. It was almost like a circus, if you really think about it. And um, Hoekstra stays well-connected to William Branham well into the 60s whenever 
Brianna, we've just released this research in another podcast with a um, long for truth guys, but whenever William Branham is supposed to be under this alleged cloud of seven angels that you see all these Branhamites praying to, William Branham actually is going to save a transsexual uh, from death row, a transsexual prostitute. And you have this weird conglomeration of famous people there trying to save the transsexual prostitute. And what's interesting is there are actually two people there. There is the transsexual and there is Caroline Lima, his his uh, prostitute partner. She's female. The transsexual was the nephew of the guys that took the halo photograph. And they were two counterfeiters that took the photograph. And they were well connected to the Pentecostal circles because they took Branham's halo photograph. So all of these big names, and I'm fixing to drop a big one here that I've not even told you yet, all these big names come into Houston to save the transsexual. Don't even mention the girl that's also on death row that committed the same crime. She was in the same, it was a three-day orgy with a, you know, a guy in Houston, and they shot him during during the act. All these Pentecostals gather. You've got Chaplain Ray, who kind of organizes the whole thing, Raymond Hoekstra. William Branham leaves his hunting trip that he's supposed to be under this cloud. And um, the other big name is John Osteen was there with them. And we actually have some recording of the guy's name was Leslie Douglas Ashley before he had a change to become Leslie Perez, a female. He was a uh, you know transsexual crossdresser who claimed to be Elijah as an as part of his insanity plea. And as you know, William Branham also claimed to be Elijah. So all of these names, it's just fascinating the way that it spiderwebs into entertainment and the way that it comes together doesn't even seem religious, but they're using the word Jesus now and then and making it sound like it might be religious, if you know what I'm saying. Yeah. Um, and, and back kind of just centering on Hoekstra, it's interesting. Hoekstra has a very strong Mishawaka connection as well, uh, oh, because really? there was a, a minister that's yeah, he, there's a guy who would minister very often for 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 Bishop Rao there and Mishawaka. And uh, I'm just putting this off the top of my head, but I believe his name was Bishop. His last name was Bishop. Uh, and Raymond Hoekstra started liking his wife real well. Um, wow. And so uh, until she became his wife, it's kind of how you do it in the uh, if you're in the upper echelons of the yeah. United Pentecostal Church. Uh, peons in the United Pentecostal Church, if you if you uh, have a marriage problem, you're, you're going to be out. But if you're in the upper echelon, they can overlook that. So when you look at Calvary Tabernacle, um, I, I want to make it clear, I'm not saying uh, I am, but I'm not, it's not coming from me that Calvary and Tabernacle is considered, uh, as they say, a flagship church in the United Pentecostal Church. It's in their history. It's, you can Google it. It's, it's right on Calvary Tabernacle's website that they're a flagship church. And Hoekstra went there in 37 uh, uh, to take that church. It was pastored by a guy named Oscar Hughes. They called him Pappy Hughes. Um, very, very humble from everything I've been to research on. A very good guy. but So really strong, but really strong mainstream Pentecostal church and Hoekstra shows up, uh, in 37 and all, and it's, he's all about hocus pocus from day one. He's doing whatever he can do and is evidently very charismatic drawing people to him. Um, so that William Branham would be sucked into that, or they would be sucked to each other's fear. Um, they, they were, they were birds of a feather. The tragic thing is that no one in the United Pentecostal Church could figure that out. And and they'll make a big deal of the fact that in 49, um, Hoekstra resigned. Um, but Hoekstra only resigned because, first of all, Nathaniel Ershon, who was his assistant pastor, was trying to get his church. I mean, let's just say it like it was. Um, and uh, I'll get some hate mail when people see this. <laughs> Uh, he was trying to get his church and Hoekstra was involved in this big 
court battle for control of David Walker. I don't know the details. I've never, I've read it and it's not really something I care about. The whole thing with David Walker was a sham. I mean, uh, you're, you're proselyting this, uh, you're prostituting really this poor kid um, who I have no doubt had probably some real gifting from God. I think he really did. I think they found a kid who was uniquely being used by God and they prostituted it for suitcases full of money. I've got some of that research published on the website in the newspaper section. You can read through, but it looks like that uh, Hoekstra and possibly Branham through the connection had custody of the kid and the, the mother of the child had to fight to get her son back. Well, the kid, as I understand it, and I'm, 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 I'm just my understanding, he was from California. Uh, right. Hoekstra came in, comes in contact him. I, I have to assume that the connection was that he was connected to a United Pentecostal church in California. Hoekstra was a big deal in the United Pentecostal church. These people ask for help. Hey, we've got this kid. He's special. And Hoekstra sees, you know, another good operator, you know, like a, like a true circus master. He goes, Hey, here's another act for my show. Um, and they're making a lot of money with this kid in short order. The parents then all of a sudden, they gave him some kind of guardianship or whatever. The parents then all of a sudden realize, hey, we're not getting, we're not getting our cut. So when you read the court documents, they're all fighting over, over the money. And it's a big deal until it looks like they agree to a payout. It looks like Hoekstra agrees to pay them. Uh, and you guys, maybe, you know, this guy's still alive, I think. I believe David Walker is still alive. I don't know if he would open up and talk to you about any of it, but it would be an interesting in- interview. I actually have had the chance to speak to him a few times now. Um, I, I think he did pass away, but I could be wrong on that. Um, but, yeah, he um, he's very adamant that he did spend, what was it, five minutes in heaven or something like this. He had some sort of experience that... If you talk to him, he won't deny. I don't believe he levitated. And um, as I mentioned to Charles on the last episode, I did not. I was not aware of the levitation thing when I talked to him. Otherwise, I would have just grilled him about it. How did you do it? What did you do? <laughs> but I did not. It's a circus act. There's no doubt. Now yeah. you know you know this, but there's another there's another part of this unholy triumvirate uh, in Indianapolis. Um, and he is working in the assemblies of God. They, they deny this, like the United Pentecostal Church. Here's another, here's another white supremacist organization with, with, with a little bit older history. Um, and uh, many of the players in the United Pentecostal Church and the, and the assembly of God uh, are the same people at, at times, or they have similar history, similar DNA. Uh, and they've got this guy over on uh, Laurel Avenue. I believe it was called Laurel Avenue Assembly of God. Um, and the deal there is they just, it's almost, it's almost the same thing as how Hoekstra comes in. It's an older preacher up in years, and they're looking for, you know, the new young guy to come in and, and, and help their church. Mm-hmm. And so they have this guy named James Jones. And yep. he is having services and uh, he's not, he's not the pastor. So he don't get the Sunday pulpit, but he's doing the midweek stuff. Um, and uh, same kind of stuff that Hoekstra's doing that Branham's doing. The only problem is the assembly of God realizes this guy's going to take over if we don't stop him. So they just come in, vote in a new pastor who just shows Jim Jones, the door. Right. Um, and, and what the Assembly of God wants to do is they want a virtual sign, virtue signal and pretend like that they came in and dealt with Jim Jones, and that's why he left their group. No, you came in and said he wasn't going to pastor your church because he wasn't one of your blue blood people, and this was one of their main churches in Indianapolis. And so they showed him the door. If he had, if he had been willing to stay on and do other stuff for him, they would have let him stay. Instead, he goes yeah. and gets a license with a— splinter group from the assembly of God called the independent assemblies of God. And he has a license with them. Yeah. And they were that Laurel street tabernacle that you're talking about. I've actually have a lot of research on it on my website as well. And they were closely tied to the message of William Branham 
I, I don't know how much I've explained to you about this, Bernie, but there are different stage personas and there are different quote unquote messages. The message that our family grew up in when, you know, before we escaped this cult was nothing like the previous versions and iterations. And it actually was, um, the name itself even was derived from quote, latter rain message. And the Laurel street tabernacle that Jim Jones was participating in was until the event that you mentioned was very closely affiliated with latter rain. And like you said, they came in, they, booted Jones out to the street. They brought in some other people and just, you know, totally changed that church. It was at that point, Jones got ordained into the independent assemblies through Joseph Matson Bose, who we also have extensive research on. He was a close partner. And eventually this is about to come out. It's not out yet. Uh, it may be by the time this podcast is released, but um, Jones and Matson Bose basically became the replacement campaign managers for William Branham. Yeah, after he lost Gordon Lindsay, Matson really becomes his primary publicist at that point. Yeah, Lindsay's, Lindsay's a big deal, and, and Branham doesn't really seem to get it. Uh, he doesn't realize that he's that without Lindsay, he's really going nowhere. This Here's one of the things, guys, with Ladder Rain that I got, I got myself sideways on, um, and I had to re- redo some of my research because I really the the latter rain is a word. Yeah. It's a concept and it is it, it it is a part of several movements. So you have to really get into um and see what exactly and frankly what I've just for the most part have done is stay away from it because uh what most of what people try to connect Branham to is latter rain came out of Saskatchewan and it was simply uh, it, it was kind of like the Toronto blessing. Uh, it was just a, a, a little temporary movement. And I, 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 I'm not going to make a judgment on whether the people were good, bad or indifferent. That's up to God. Um, but people try to connect William Branham to that. And I won't deny that maybe their ministers were infatuated with Branham because, you know, he was this big name in their mind, big guy that was, you know, doing all these miracles and signs and wonders. Um, but he wasn't connected to it. And the whole concept of latter rain is actually older than what we would call the Pentecostal movement. Uh, we find, I found Lillian Thistlethwaite, uh, who's Charles Parham's sister-in-law talking about latter rain. And we're talking about 1900. Um, mm. so it, and it was all really based, you guys know, on that scripture of talking about the former yeah. and the latter rain. Joel um, two, I believe. Right. So, but that's rain, R-A-I-N. There's also latter rain, R-E-I-G-N, or my spelling here. <laughs> um, so it's, it's really, it may be a, a good topic for somebody to study and say, hey, what was the, what was the latter rain about? How many different versions of it were there? Um, mm -hmm. But you'll see that because it's scripture, you'll see that woven through a lot of different movements and it's kind of like yeah. a really weird, weird ball of string. You yeah. know, it's kind of like, I always smile uh, when people come to, to services and they get up to exhort or speak and they'll go, and the Shekinah glory is falling. <laughs> and, and they think, they think, and this is what happens with latter rain. They think that they have invoked some wonderful, special word, you know, all yeah. cults need special words. Um, when Shekinah is like the yin and the yang, Shekinah is a very, if you Google, if you just Google it, you'll be like, Oh my God, what have I stumbled into? <laughs> you know, yeah. but it's in strong's concordance. Therefore everything in strong's concordance is, is the gospel. Yeah. Um, but it's not in the Bible. We're and going to, I always, I always take people back to, can we just stay in scripture? Um, you know, and so I don't get all weirded out when someone says Shekinah, uh, but you know, I, 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 we teach, we teach people I'm not trying to indoctrinate people, trying to educate people and say, that's not a word we want to use you're, yeah. it, if you, but if you're just trying to revoke a response from the crowd, people think it's special. They thought William Branham was special. They thought yeah. David Walker was special. Um, and they probably weren't as special as you two guys in reality. 
We're going to have a whole episode on ladder rain, and we will only skim the surface of it. We actually decided to dive in and try to understand it. And because, again, the message, the quote-unquote message of William Branham is shortened from the ladder rain message. And we've not published all of this history yet. We're going to. And we have some testimony from a key individual who was in the formations of ladder. Well, he's the son of a guy that was in the formations of ladder rain, but you're right. William Branham wasn't in the main sect ladder rain. There was the ladder rain revival, which led to the ladder rain movement. And at the same time you have this going on, you had the voice of healing revival, which Branham was the head. There was a period in time, a brief period from 47 to I think 48 or early 49, where the two movements merged and they became one and the same. If you went to the Voice of Healing revival, you were going to the Latter Rain revival. And then when they split, they splintered into numerous, numerous, countless cults, like you said. And they're each claiming some variation of this. William Branham was there in the onset, uh, according to the eyewitnesses that we're about to publish, but he was teaching them how to do the mysticism. Branham had this trick where he would hold a string and a bracelet and say, now use your faith and move the bracelet and the bracelet would start moving, <laughs> which is a trick. I, you know, if I, I don't frequent bars, but if people go to bars, it's like a bar trick, right here, move the bracelet. He's doing this kind of thing in, in the early inception of latter rain movement. He's training them how to do mysticism. And then what happens is he tries to inject his manifest sons of God theology into latter rain. And it actually sticks through, um, can't remember the guy's name. Uh, Houghton, I think it is Arn Baxter's secretary gets into involved in latter rain. Branham convinces him that manif God is manifesting himself as in the fivefold ministry as apostles, priests, prophets, etc., and that the return of Jesus Christ isn't what everybody thinks. It's coming as this movement, which literally becomes the new apostolic reformation later. So it's this fascinating history, much bigger than this episode can hold. But yes, William Branham was deeply, deeply connected to latter rain for a brief period of time. I'll put it like that. That'll be fun to dive into when we get there, John, because uh, you, you're, you're exactly right. Latter Rain is, uh, you, you could look, the message is deeply influenced by Latter Rain, um, and you look, there's so many splinter groups. Some of the more prominent ones are like Sam Fife's The Move, John Robert Stevens' The Walk, right? There's The Walk, there's The Move, there's The Message, there's, <laughs> there's something about these catchphrases that all spun out of Latter Rain and forms all these different groups, and... Uh, but I, I got one more question I'd like to ask uh, uh, Dr. Wade before we, before we wrap things up. Um, but I know William Branham, he was especially popular among the, the apostolic Pentecostals and the UPC in particular. And I know my own family was largely in the UPC before they converted into the message and influenced by William Branham. And uh, from your perspective, what, what was William Branham's appeal to those people, uh, you think, during that period of time, during the 40s, during the 50s? Well, first of all, as you well know, there is life after the United Pentecostal Church. <laughs> uh, my dad, my dad held license with the United Pentecostal Church. Uh, it it's, was kind of fun. We had a gentleman who visited our conference last week, and he said he was in the United Pentecostal Church. And I looked him dead in the eye, was having just a little fun with it, but I said, "It's okay, you can still be saved." Um, but in many ways, um, I, I'm not being funny. Uh, the United Pentecostal Church has developed a very special cult, and then if you're not in their cult, they don't like you. Uh, there are some cracks in that, however. There are some people that are going, you know what, enough is enough. We really cannot do this anymore. Um, you know, they're, they're realizing that, that their, their group is, uh, uh, whatever you want to call it, uh, they've shielded themselves from the whole world. Uh, the, 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 uh, you know, if you, you have to get, I'll try to just do this quickly because I know you're, we're bumping into your hour, but uh, the United Pentecostal Church is very complex, uh, but yet it's not. Most people in the United Pentecostal Church think they're the continuation, as, uh, as Nathaniel Urshan, we are the continuation of the church at Jerusalem. Um, 
uh, it's kind of like Khazarian Jews were told they were they were a continuation of Abraham. They didn't realize that they were converts in year 1000 and beyond. Um, so when you look at the Pentecostal church, they came out of several messes, merges, fusses, um, but they emerged as the white version of the movement that began in Topeka, Kansas in 1901 under Charles Parham. Parham, of course, was completely unwilling to make the blacks and the Hispanics and the Japanese and, and others that they considered undesirable to leave. So they formed the Assemblies of God first. Um, and the Assemblies of God uh, has done a really good job of, uh, you know, it's okay to have black missionaries, but we really don't want any in our churches if we don't have to. Um, and you talked about you talked about the division of Pentecostals, and because we all have some Pentecostal connectivity, we don't realize that the division is much larger. Pentecostals do not have any special uh, connection. Uh, we're victims of all the same thing. Um, it was Protestants, primarily, in, uh, primarily the Methodist Episcopal movement, that moved this nation to end slavery. They thought they thought that Abraham Lincoln was the was the savior from that vantage point. They backed his election. They backed the Civil War, the overthrowing of slavery. And but once that slavery had ended, they did not agree on what to do next. Most many of them, most of them, I will say, did not see black people as their equal. So it's fine to free them. Uh, there's a kind of a a fun, fun line in Mel Gibson's uh, movie, The Patriot, where he goes, where one of the characters says, what? First, we're going to free them. Then we're going to teach them to read. Um, and these same issues were going on with women in, in society. Uh, you give them the right to vote, all this stuff. So it's very com complex, but it's not. So I always say after the Civil War, white people adopted the separate but equal Jesus. I can't find him in the Bible, but in fact, almost every American denomination has a black counterpart. It was the separate but equal. So you have Baptists that also have, you know, the Southern Baptist Convention, which is a total joke to me. This is a group that organized particularly so white people could own black people. But yet there's a black Southern Baptist group. There's black Methodists. There's that they and they were forced to form their own separate but equal groups, uh, which were just separate. They weren't equal. Um, and the Church of Christ, the holiness movement. Um, and Parham is painted as a holiness guy, when in fact, he's a Methodist. Parham's message never moves from Methodism. His wife's a Quaker. He ne she, they never move from their, their vision. And that's not generally accepted by the separate but equal uh, Jesus people. So we have first the Assemblies of God, and then they start fighting again for control, start arguing about what is they, they couch as a doctrinal argument. Uh, Walter Hollenweger, one of the foremost experts in, in Pentecostal history, says how convenient for the Assemblies of God that they were able to couch their racial problems into a doctrinal argument. And they make a big fuss about the 1950 in, in St. Louis, talk about Keele Auditorium, back to St. Louis, uh, I'm not certain that was in Keel, but it probably was. And they're arguing about uh, what you say when you baptize someone, as though any of us has the power to remit sins, uh, and the person being baptized is not more important than what I might say. Now, when it gets stupid, obviously, you can't invoke Buddha and say this is a Christian baptism. Uh, but this is what they were <laughs> arguing about. And it was a straw man. The real deal is a straw man, because I know uh, Assembly of God pastors today that simply baptize in Jesus' name. Why? It's in the Bible. You have prominent guys like T.D. Jakes that baptize in Jesus' name. Why? You ask him. He says, it's in the Bible, and we move on. But these guys decided to make it a big doctrinal fight. And the re reason they mainly made a doctrinal fight is the champion of the what they wanted to call the Jesus-only argument was a black man named Garfield Thomas Haywood. They were happy for all those in that faction to follow him and give them back their all-white group because they weren't quite sure how to retain what they had created. Yeah. I was shocked. It was your research, actually, that pointed me to towards Haywood because 
you know, there's there's a lot of indoctrination that happens in these types of religious cults that we escaped. And one of the indoctrinated quote unquote truths that William Branham brought divinely to the world was that he taught them how to properly baptize. And we literally were indoctrinated to believe this originated with William Branham. And I met oh, you really? and started, yeah, I started looking through your research and you, you set me on GT Haywood and Oh no, he's just literally copied GT Haywood, the, you know, the black man and he's in a white supremacy group. He's actually, and if you really think about it, he was successful in this. He was trying to limit the, historical value of G.T. Haywood by claiming Haywood's right. You know, Haywood is is one of the reasons why that oneness Pentecostalism exists. Probably, you know, probably the primary reason, if you think about how famous he was. William Branham tried to limit that fame by claiming Haywood's, you know, doctrinal baptism. And then I think he adds, he adds one word to the baptism phrase or something, but he's literally just robbing from Haywood, claiming it, and then around the globe you will find people who have been influenced by or are still in this cult of personality who believe that it was William Branham who brought the oneness baptism to the world, which is completely incorrect. Yeah, w William Branham added the word Lord. You have to be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus yeah. Christ. <laughs> well, it's interesting because um, Haywood definitely, I think, brings forward the concept of oneness. Uh, it was a red badge of courage. Uh, he was yeah. fighting against his white supremacist enemies in the assemblies of God. And so he's trying to differentiate what, where they disagree. Uh, but the reality is that baptism, uh, of course, other than being in scripture, which is the most important place any of it should be, um, was brought forward by Charles Parham. People don't know that because uh, even those like me who were raised in a group that baptized in Jesus' name, we were told, you know, Parham was the enemy because, you know, how dare he have black people, uh, give, you know, like William Seymour. William Seymour was a scourge to these white people. That's why the fuss with Azusa Street happens. That's why they cut them off. They didn't want to be associated with the darkies over there in, in California. Um, and so, you know, this is just unacceptable. So uh, Haywood, you're right. Haywood emerges, when you use the word oneness, uh, he emerges as the most prominent oneness minister. Fascinating because in, it's in the 1920s in Indianapolis when the state of Indiana has a governor who is prominent in the Ku Klux Klan. So what he fought against there. Uh, is is vicious. But Parham, when you look at Parham, he did not believe in baptism. He was a Methodist and kind of more old line Methodist. So they baptized infants sometimes and you could get baptized, but it wasn't necessary. Uh, and But then he felt like God had spoke to him and said, no, you need to be baptized. And then he said, okay, if you do need to be baptized and, you know, you guys know if you study baptism, there's a hundred ways to do it. And Parham said, well, if we're going to baptize, we should baptize according to the Bible. And of course, he just went to what the apostles said and, and did. And he started baptizing, simply invoking the name Jesus Christ. He wrote extensively about it in his book. Uh, I think it was published in 1900 or 1901. Um, people just kind of ignore that, like, oh, yeah, he didn't really believe that. No, he did believe it. And he makes a very strong point. He says, Neither Sarah nor I, speaking of his wife, have ever been baptized using a triune formula. So he is an absolute opponent of the idea of invoking the formula developed by the Roman church. Um, and so he takes a very strong stand, but people try to act like it wasn't there. It's there. It's in writing. It's historically preserved. It's what he believed. Um, and so... That, you know, and he talks, you can read it. It's not like you have to just like, oh, my God, what did he say? So, yeah. but the Assemblies of God rejects it. Not so much because it wasn't scriptural. They reject it because it was connected to Parham. Everything connected to Parham, they want to do the opposite. And so this is a really big deal. Um, and it's fine. You know, you have to realize when the Assembly got first organized, it's a little bit, it's a fellowship and we're all going to work together. 
but they really were focused on making it a nomination. And in 16, they make sure everybody knows you're going to do it our way or the highway. Um, yeah. And that's when it becomes a doctrinal division. Um, yeah. And Haywood is on the opposite side of that. Um, and he's black. And so um, there's some very strong things that are happening, including in the 1915 Assembly of God meeting. Uh, they thre- threatened to lynch Haywood. Oh, wow. And that was at the time, if I remember right, that was at the time that F.F. F. Bosworth, William Branham's mentor, was in the assemblies. He uh, helped establish the assemblies. Yeah, Bosworth is one of those guys. And I mean, uh, he's a Dowieite with really yeah. strong. You know, Dowie tried to bridge the racial gap, but the reality is Dowie was just there for the money. Yeah. Um, he, was a mu- he was much better at being a shaman than William Branham. I mean, this guy got it done. I mean, he built it. He he built an empire. Yeah. Um, Branham was trying, but but Dowie, uh, you know, give the devil his due. Uh, yeah. He, he was getting it done. I am certain that we're going to get blasted through all kinds of comments on much of this discussion. You know, we've got some very hardcore Trinitarians. And, uh, you know, people who baptize the Trinitarian way, who watch the show, we've got some really hardcore oneness who say the Trinitarians are going to hell because they baptize in the Trinity. And, you know, I'm not a I'm not a minister. I don't claim to be. I don't even want I don't even want to be a minister. But just taking a step back from all of this, if you just think about it, if a person has the power to send somebody to heaven or hell who's actively seeking Christ, who wants to be baptized because that's what the Bible says to do, and the person who dunks them in the water can say a word that sends them to heaven or <laughs> sends them to hell, you basically have you've basically given an incantation to the minister who's baptizing them. It becomes an incantation instead of you know displaying your faith to God, right? Yeah, so, all cults have these special words. Mm-hmm. Yeah, here's the thing. Uh, and anyone who denies this, I can't help them. The scripture gives us very specific scripture on what to say, uh, baptism. We lost immortality in the garden of Eden. Oh, free plug for my book. I talk about <laughs> what we lost and what Christ came to do to get it back for us. Cause we could get it back. We lost something we could not get back. That was our immortality. So the Holy spirit is that, imprimatur of the holy god in our lives to help us get back to our immortality and uh, we we always trying to get people to understand the kingdom when the kingdom is in us we're trying to get people in something that already here it's here the kingdom is in us and our job is to try to share that with other people they need the kingdom and we get bogged down in these theological debates that i don't really think bring a lot of value. Yeah. Charles, add to our list of side episodes that we're going to have to do. We're going to have to do a whole episode on baptism because like Bernie's saying here, I cannot think of a single person who gets baptized the Trinitarian way who says, wow, I've just been baptized into the Trinity. They're all thinking, no, I'm, I'm a Christian. I've just joined Christ. I've joined the kingdom. And same with the oneness, you know, William Branham, there's Many, many things that he indoctrinated us incorrectly, but one of the biggest things that really hit us when we left and started visiting other churches, he falsely taught everyone who's in his sect to believe that all Trinitarians believe that there are three gods, plural. I have not yet met, and I've been to several different churches after leaving the message cult, I've not yet met one single person who believes that there are three gods and I've not yet met a single person who is baptized in the Trinitarian formula who says that I've been baptized into the Trinity. No, they've been baptized into Christ Jesus, their savior. That's who, that's why they joined the church. That's why they call themselves Christians. Otherwise you would call yourself, I'm a Trinitarian and you're a Christian. It's totally different. There are some that actually do believe there's two thrones and a bird perch in heaven. Um, but they are rare. Um, yeah, they're very rare. And you're right. We've been, it's indoctrination. We've been indoctrinated to be divided from our fellow brother and our our comrades in arms. Um, and it's the work of Satan to come in 
um, and so tears, you know, so we sowed good field student seed in this field and, and it's got tears. What happened? An enemy has done this. The scripture says, so that's what's happened. We've been divided from people, uh, unnecessarily. Um, yeah. and the only one that benefits from that is Satan. Yeah. Tell us where we can find your book. Um, my book is available, uh, everywhere. Uh, Amazon, just go to Amazon, type in my name, Bernie Wade. It'll come up war on earth, uh, Barnes and Noble, all the bookstores. They tell me it'll be on the shelves in Walmart in about 30 days. Awesome. I think that'll be kind of fun to walk into Walmart and see my book. So <laughs> excellent. And I'm excited, like I say, for the Parham book, that one is specifically interesting to me, but well, we've, we could talk forever. I think I'm going to wrap it up and thanks for having me today. Yeah. We may have you back on again, if you don't mind, because this I'd is fascinating. If you've enjoyed our show and you want more information, you can check us out on the web. You can find us at william-branham.org and christiangospelchurch.org. For an overview of the historical research of William Branham and the Healing Revivals, read Preacher Behind the White Hoods, a critical examination of William Branham and his message, available on Amazon, Kindle, and Audible. Join us again next week. We've got a great episode coming. <laughs>